Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. I've had more than one person tell me that uh, since it's been three weeks, um, this better be an amazing sermon. I had more than one of you say that. Uh, It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. I'm out of practice now. And I'm pretty sure at the end, you're going to go, I wish I would have heard that two weeks ago. Because <laughs> this is the sermon I had two weeks ago, and it was probably just right for you, right at that point in your life. And you're going to go, man, I wish I would have heard. I'm sorry. But here we go. We're going to do this sermon from two weeks ago. We're going to do it today. Um, I had to keep adjusting my notes, though. Uh, it now says, three weeks ago, the Lord stood by Paul. Um, so I had to keep moving it back and moving it back. Um, And that's exactly where we were. Paul is in Caesarea. Uh, We've talked about how God was with him. We've talked about, there's just so many themes, and I just want to take you back to a couple of those. Uh, A few weeks ago, it was uh, this idea of keeping calm because the Lord is with you. And we saw Paul, um, right, the Lord with Paul as he's going through all these different things. We talked about that. We're going to pick up the story right from that point. And I'm going to start by reading something we'd read last time. And uh, it starts off in Acts chapter 24. I'm going to have it up here on the screen for you. Uh, but if you want to look in your Bibles, I'm starting off with verse 1, Acts 24:1, And it says this, uh, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and, one, and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the stage is set. Uh, we've talked about this a couple times just briefly, but now we're going to dig into it. Uh, And it says, when he had been summoned, this Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, and you hear it slipping off his tongue, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Not true. Felix was not known for peace. When I picture Tertullus, this is what I see in my head. That's what I imagine Tertullus looking like. I just, that's, I'm like Tertullus. I just picture him looking like this. This guy is, if, if you know Lord of the Rings stuff, this is worm tongue. And so th- that's what I picture Tertullus looking like, old worm tongue, right? Can you just see it now in your head? That's how I, I just had to share that with you in my head. That's what Tertullus looks like. He goes on, now have that picture in your head. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And so you have these accusations. He's a plague. He stirs up riots. He's a ringleader. He even tried to profane the temple, but we ceased him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So that final accusation, uh, profaning the temple, and of course, in my imagination, it now looks like this. And you see Tertullus whispering to Felix, the governor, he even tried to profane the temple. You guys aren't laughing like I thought you would. You may not be nerds. Okay, that's probably true. That's probably true. But that's how I picture Tertullus, just weaving this, you know, scheme of lies, this paid lawyer, you know, and he's coming across as like, man, this guy is evil. This Paul, don't trust him. 
The Jews also join in the charge, affirming that all these things were so, a little bit like calling witnesses. And so I picture all the Jews getting up and saying, yes, this is exactly what happened. This is what he did. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. So the governor, though, is going to hear both sides at least. Paul says this, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. No pretense there acknowledges his actual role. You have been a judge over the nation for many years. But Paul cheerfully makes his defense. Um, I'm hoping that today you will see um, how Paul is going to use this to make a defense, but not primarily a defense for himself. It's gonna, and so you're going to have to listen carefully. Actually, a few weeks ago, we, uh, on Wednesday night, we went through this defense and we broke it down um, just like part by part and we kind of like differentiate, okay, this is where he defends this, this is where he defends this. And from that, I started to realize even uh, more so, this defense is not just a defense for his own sake, but it's a defense of the gospel. Okay, so there's the big idea. I bolded that in my notes, so I'm going to say it again. It's about a defense of the gospel. It's not just about him defending himself, not in Paul's eyes. The first way you will see that he defends the gospel is by clarifying how he has lived. He is able to clear his name, and that's what we're going to hear him saying. He's going to clear his name. I got to thinking about this. I thought, can we do that? That's kind of the question that I had to ask myself. Can we do the same thing that he's about ready to do? Um, How about you? Are you argumentative? Now, just want to lay the groundwork. You guys understand, when I say the gospel, right, that, that specifically means one thing in particular. The word itself means what? Does anybody know what the word itself means? Good news, right? The word literally means good news, the gospel. In that, when I say gospel, I know it brings up all kinds of other ideas. For those of you that have been Christians for a long time, or maybe even just for a little while, it brings up different ideas. What's, what's some of those things that come up? When, you, when I say the gospel, what, what are some things that might pop into your head? No certain right answer here. I'm just curious. What pops in your head when I say the gospel? Jesus, God's written word, the cross, resurrection. Somebody else? Well, let me ask you this. Why is it good news to you? Salvation, right? Solution to the ultimate problem. The good news is that God preparing a way for us to be reunited with him, that relationship restored, he took care of everything. He sent Christ to the cross, paid the penalty of your sin and my sin. That's good news. That's good news. The fact that when we stand before God on judgment day, It's not going to be a scale. Aren't you glad of that? I wouldn't win that little scenario. None of us would. Instead, it's going to be Christ that's going to say, before the Father, sin paid for, righteousness imputed to. And we will stand before him completely justified. And we will just say, how in the world can this be but for the grace of God? 
Now, there's some little sub-things underneath this that I, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing here in my notes to, to lay these things out because there's some sub-things that, that come across. When I say the gospel, and we, we have that in mind. There's some, some other things that need to filter into that. I'll give you one example. If, if you have been a recipient of such grace... Anybody that understands the, the reception they've gotten of God's grace upon themselves, it, anybody that gets it, it, it's going to change, and the Bible teaches this over and over again, it's going to change how you react with all these other human beings around you. And so when I talk about the gospel, the gospel, a gospel life, a gospel-centered life, it, that's including not just me recognizing this, but suddenly realizing that this is for, for you and for you, and, and suddenly I'm not any better than anybody else. And, and then I love the phrase that I borrow from D.A. Carson all the time. Suddenly I just walk around like I'm, I'm a beggar showing another beggar where there's bread. It changes how we live. There's, there's good news. How about you? Then, if we go back to Paul, preparing to make a defense for himself, his first step of the gospel is the, the ability to clarify he's not guilty of these evil things that he's being charged of. So I say, how about you? Are you a plague at work? Are you argumentative? I don't think any of us stir up riots necessarily. Do you ever stir the pot? Consider Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians, a summary of how to live. He says this, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This, this is something that's later. Now, this is just wise in general. Consider this from Proverbs. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. I love Proverbs. They're so practical. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Interesting. Another proverb for you is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. I gotta be honest, some people, and I'm, let's be real honest, some Christians, they don't keep aloof from it. They dive right in every opportunity they get. You may see where this is headed. Every fool will be quarreling. The Apostle Peter says something similar, but listen to his reasoning here. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. See, reality will be revealed as you're analyzed. I don't want to be analyzed. It's going to happen. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The very first step of Paul's presenting the gospel in this particular case is by the ability to clarify, I've lived in a way that you can examine and see. I've not only, I'm not only going to tell you the gospel, I've lived the gospel. Let's go back to Paul's defense. He says this, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. You see what he's doing here? 
He's clarifying. I'm not, the, the things that they're saying, I'm not guilty of. But I, he's not going to stop there. He's laying it out. And I think the purpose is to get the focus on what really matters. And it's not these false accusations. He goes on to say, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. About 50 years after this particular event, um, 50 to 100 years after this particular event, there's another Christian, his name is Justin, standing before uh, another governor, making a similar defense. Listen to this. This is uh, dated around AD 150, so maybe about 100 years after Paul's defense. Listen to the similarity here. This man, Justin, had been taken before a court. And he starts off and he says this, We have not come to flatter you by this writing, nor please you by our address. This is so similar to what went on with Paul. Right? I'm not here to flatter you with words. But to beg that you pass judgment after an accurate and searching investigation. In other words, my life is an open book here. You take a look. Right? Take a look. As for us, no evil can be done to us unless we are convicted as evildoers or proved to be wicked men. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. To avoid anyone thinking that this is an unreasonable and reckless declaration, we demand that the charges against the Christians be investigated. How many of us would be willing to go that far? We were willing to stand up for our rights and our ability to do different things, but are you willing to stand under scrutiny? Would it come out that you had been gracious, loving, not stirring things up? If these are substantiated, we should be justly punished. But if no one can convict us of anything, true reason forbids you to wrong blameless men because of evil rumors. It is our task, therefore, to provide to all an opportunity of inspecting our life and teachings. Not just our teachings, our life. Open for examination. It is your business when you hear us to be good judges as reason demands. Paul teaches in Romans 13 that we ought to be obedient to our governing authorities. Peter teaches something similar. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Side note before I read the rest of this. The, when I was preaching through 1 Peter, um, Obama was president. Now Trump is president. And I can say this, it doesn't even matter. Who was in charge when uh, Peter was writing this? Nero. Have we talked about him a few times here? Okay. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's Peter. By doing this, the ability to stand under this scrutiny, Paul is going to be able to keep the focus on what is really important and what is really at stake. This, this follows from this idea here that he's saying, hey, Feel free to examine my life. And he's going to begin to work in. And I'm going to be honest. The, I've had more than one week to look at this passage. And the more, more weeks I've looked at it, the more I've gone, this is super interesting what Paul does next. 
See, he's not going to be able to just bring in the whole gospel message, but he brings in, I think, I believe personally, and I believe this even more now after having been a pastor for how many, how many years have I been a pastor? Nine? The more people I've talked to, especially when they get close to their deathbeds, this is always there. And I think for most, it's always there anyway. They just don't talk about it all the time. There's this thing that's looming and Paul comes in and he hones in on the thing that's in everybody's mind, I believe. It's death. I don't know if you know this. Everybody dies. Right? In Genesis, it says this, God speaking after sin entered to the world. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Amen to that. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. I think somewhere in the back of every single one of our minds, that little statement is always there. We try to ignore it. We try to pretend that it's not there. And people that you meet, they may act like, man, I'm just, I believe that every single person in the back of their heads, that little statement is there. You are dust. You're dust. And to dust you will return. Romans 5.12 lays it out in a very gospel way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We all know this is true. And I have found some of the most difficult, challenging people to be able to talk to and to be able to present the gospel to. This is that one point of agreement if there's nothing else, we all die. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. It's coming. It's around the corner for each and every one of us. So listen to what Paul says next. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, that's important, hold that phrase in your head, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, because that's the real question about this death that's looming that everybody has. What's next? Right? Not just it's going to happen, but what happens right after that? Ecclesiastes 12, 14, right after the writer of Ecclesiastes says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I'll never forget the first time I read Ecclesiastes. I was like, what? And then I got to the last few, two verses and it said, well, let's hear the conclusion. I was so happy. I can remember reading that and going, yes, the conclusion. That's what I need right now. And right after he gives this summary, he says this in Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is a, for sure, Death, and at some point after that, there's a judgment. Hebrews 9, 27, is appointed in a man once to die. And after that, judgment. It's coming. It's amazing to me how often this concept flows into people that would say they have nothing to do with God. That, that idea is still lurking at the back of their minds. 
there is a judgment day. Even people in the, the firmest you know, stance of their sin will sometimes say, right, only God will judge. Have you ever heard that one before? My favorite response to that, well, that should make you afraid. <laughs> Paul's going to shift back to his defense here. He says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You see how he's laying out here? He, he, he slipped it in there. There's a judgment day coming. He shifts back to this defense, clearing his name. I have a clear conscience between God and man. Important that he throws that in there as well. After several years, I came and kind of goes into his story. I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews uh, from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, and I think that we've talked about this a few times, other than this one thing, he says, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. It's interesting that he brings this up for two reasons. One, we discovered on Wednesday, uh, we were talking about this, and I think Paul is, again, clearing his conscience. If that was if you felt like that was just stirring up the crowd, if there's any little bit of me that was trying to stir up the council by throwing that in there, I'm acknowledging that, other than this one thing. But I think what has he done is, again, the real issue here is resurrection. I mean, isn't the real question not just uh, death and what happen, happens after? But, man, wouldn't it be nice to know somebody who had been there and maybe come back to tell us? Isn't that who Jesus is? He's been there. He's died. He's come back. And the thing about his coming back is he said, I've now made this a way for all of you. That I will carry you through this. Trust in me. Trust in me. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I, might, I will decide your case. Once again, now he's going to put Paul off to the side for a little bit. You might be thinking, well, Paul didn't even get a chance to share the full gospel message. And that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about, is how do we share the gospel in situations of life, in these, these weird situations we find ourselves in, these challenging situations, in a situation where it seems like everybody's against us. How do you, in fact, I was going to ask, does anybody, has anybody ever had that happen where you want to share the gospel and you, maybe you wake up in the morning like, man, I, God, give me a chance to share the gospel today. And then you go into whatever situation, whether it's work or somewhere else, and it feels like not just are there no opportunities, but it seems like everybody's like out to get you. Anybody ever had that happen? Now, I expected a few more hands. Nobody raised their hand, but several of you are going, mm-hmm. Maybe it feels that way. Maybe it's like that for Paul. Maybe it is like that for us more often than we realize. The first thing that we've seen Paul do is he's been able to, leading up to this, and I think this is the part that I want to focus in on for the rest of our time. Leading up to those moments, there's an important foundation that ought to be laid. 
See, if you go, man, I want to have the opportunity to share the gospel, there's, there's a foundation that you ought to be laying each and every day, and it's the foundation of a, a good life, lived gospel, right? Lived out gospel. So that when these times come and people want to try to, what did Peter say? They will see your good deeds and glorify God. They'll have no other choice. What, what, like, there's nothing I can pin on this person. They actually haven't been doing these things that they've been being accused of. They are loving. They are kind. They are this. They are, the, they are these things. In the year 130, there's a letter that they've found. Um, so 130, this is about maybe, you know, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years after this thing happened with Paul. There's this letter written. It's called the Epistle to Diogenes. Um, and it says this, it's describing Christians. So just to give you an idea of, now, don't start reading yet. You guys are reading before I started. Uh, just to give you an idea of why I'm sharing this, this is a description of what Christians were like. How were they perceived? How were they seen? When I read this, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think that's always the case today, but I think it ought to be, and that's obviously why I'm sharing it. How should we be perceived amongst the people that we work with and we live around and everything else? Listen to this description. I love it. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. It's not those things, in other words. For they neither inhabit cities of their own. So the Christians aren't like, this is our Christian city, we're going to go here. Right? They're not inhabiting cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. Like, I can't, we can't pin any particular thing about them. Like, they're not all wearing red hats, so we can figure out who they are, right? They don't use certain words that nobody else, although we do that sometimes, like gospel, right? It's unavoidable. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, and so this is the Roman Empire time period, so they had the Greek cities, and any cities that weren't considered Greek in Rome were called barbarian cities. But these, so these Christians are inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as a lot of each of them has determined in following the customs of the natives in respect of clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. So if they're living in a city with these sorts of people, they're wearing that, that kind of clothing. They're living in the city with these sorts of people, they're wearing that kind of clothing. They're not distinguished by those things. clothing, food, the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries as simply as sojourners. Right? Whatever country they're in. They dwell as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if they're foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. I just love this. It develops a picture in my head of what these people were like, these early Christians. They marry, as do all others. They beget children but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Interesting. They're in the flesh, 
but they do not live after the flesh. They, they pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of. I found that in our, our day, we reject that part. Understand, we're not the first that gets evil spoken of right? We get, we get ticked off when people are saying bad things about Christians. We feel like we need to... See, that's the difference between what Paul did and what we do sometimes. We want, we want to jump up and defend in an aggressive way. Paul was just simply saying, feel free to examine and see if these things are true. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They're reviled and blessed. They're insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. You picture these early Christians. When they're punished, it like stirs up this rejoicing as if they've never been more alive. And do, have we seen that in Acts with, with Paul? Thrown in prison, what's he doing? Remember? Singing, praising God. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. <coughs> I am so sorry. I tried to avoid my microphone. Um, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So important. To sum it all up in one word, but the soul is to the body that are Christians to the world. I, I could end right on this spot, and this is pretty much where I'm going to stop with this encouragement to say this. Could this, and if anybody would like me to print this out for you to browse through at some point, the question I ask myself, could this be said of Christians today? Could this be said of us today? Bring it down just a little bit. What would this even mean? Now, I'm going to let you think, chew on this for a second. Now, part of this I'm going to examine further on Wednesday night. I think I really want to get in. What would this mean? Like, let's dig into it. But let's get the, get the juices flowing here. What does this even mean? This sounds nice. But what would that actually mean for us? Now, there's some things we could pull from what this guy said, but what does it mean for us to live this life that can easily be examined? Live, live an examinable life. Is examinable a word? Let's make it a word. Live an examinable life. What does that mean? Anybody want to throw some thoughts out there? I know you don't want to get involved, do you? Matt, you're going to make us think this morning? I'm sorry. We've got to think about it. What does it mean? Yeah. 
Oh, I think that's super. That's a great, I didn't have that in my list. That's a, that's a great one. Be transparent with people. Do you know what she means by that? I have a tendency to do like, you know, but to be trans, to be willing to share. Yeah. Mm. So to be examinable, I think you have to be willing to take in or absorb criticism or evaluation of your life and really think about what it's true. Yeah. Everybody hear that? So, so when you're criticized before you, and I don't know about you guys, but when you're criticized, isn't there, a, the, the, the tendency is to jump right to, well, that's not true. But it may be instead the ability to go, is that true? And if it is in any way, I think you even see that a little bit in Paul's statement, because right at the very end, what did he say? He said, other than this one thing, when I said this, I think he's acknowledging that even though I wasn't doing that, maybe if that could have been seen that way. The willingness to be. Anybody else? No, some of you are thinking, I can actually hear the gears grinding. They're out of practice. There's some rust in those gears. Well, that might also be not just slow to defend yourself, but willing and able to still show kindness, kind words, love, even to that very person who is perhaps questioning your judgment, questioning your motives, mm-hmm. and perhaps even further than that, speaking evil of what your good intentions are. Yeah. To be kind. and not that play into right with Jesus' teachings, right? Love your enemies, not just your neighbor. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hurt you. Pray for them who persecute you. So you got those people, maybe they're lying about you. Instead of, some of us have a tendency, have you ever, have you ever done the whole alliance building thing? You know what I'm talking about? You got somebody at work and they're like talking about, and so then you start to build your little team of people that are on your side, you know? Now, you know I didn't do that, right? Yeah, I know you didn't do that. Well, they're saying I did do that. Well, I can't believe they would say that. And you start building your little alliance so one day you can face off against them. All these people know, you're the liar, right? What if instead of doing that, we just said, Lord, I'm going to just leave this in your hands. And I'm going to go out of my way to be good and kind to that person in spite of all that they're doing. I, that's why I like in this statement, he says they live by the laws, but li- they surpass above and beyond. I think these are all good things. I hope that uh, if you can, Wednesday night, we're, I hope to really dig into that and say like even more so, what does this mean? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if as you go back out into you know, work on Monday or whenever you go back, some of these things I hope will filter in. You start thinking, okay, Lord, what would it mean? you may find to begin to get the ball rolling if you haven't been doing this, that your first step on Monday might be to go and hunt out certain people and say, I want you to know, get the words out, I'm, what is it? I'm sorry. (laughs) Right? I'm sorry. If I've been rude to you or if I've, I, I just want you to know I'm sorry. Maybe there's some people you know for sure. I've done this, and I want you to know I apologize for those things. Right? They may go, well, I don't care if you're sorry. Is that your business? 
No. Begin building that path. You want opportunities to share the gospel. Start it this way. And start it this week, if you haven't already. Live a quiet life. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to close this time now in prayer before we turn to communion. Lord, and I just want to pray now that you'd be with each and every one of us as we think about what this would look like to live this way. Lord, we have some good ideas, some things uh, that, are, that are going on how we ought to treat others and how we ought to be apologetic, how we ought to be loving towards uh, anybody, Lord, as, that we need to be transparent and open with uh, the things that we are doing so people can examine our lives, be ready to hear that criticism, Lord, and to ask the question, is it true? Well, these are some ways to get this going this week. Lord, I know that there are, there are many people in, in our lives that we would love to be able to share the gospel with, but they have not been open. In fact, there may be some people that it, it seems like they're against us. Lord, I pray that we would be like Paul and begin to lay this foundation of a, a righteous life so that we can come to those people and say, you know, examine. My life is an open book before you. If I'm guilty of something, I deserve. But if I'm not, there may be other things that we can talk about. Death is coming. Jesus has been there. He came back from the dead. And he's told us how to survive. It's through faith. It's through trusting in him that he's paid the penalty for all those things that we've done. Lord God, I pray that you give us opportunities to live gospel so that we might speak gospel. I pray now, Lord, as we turn towards communion, Lord, as we fellowship one with another, I gotta ask that you would just let this be a time of refreshing before we enter into our week. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.